0: It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy.
2: Welcome back, everybody, to another summer reading edition of 30 with Murdy. You've heard some past episodes of Tyler Kepner about his book, K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches, and the Jack Curry and David Cohn collaboration, Full Count. And uh, hope you enjoyed both of those and some of the other episodes that we've uh, put up here in recent weeks. As I said, the Summer Reading Edition continues with my friends Mark Feinstein and Brian Hoke. Their book, Mission 27, A New Boss, A New Ballpark, and One Last Ring for the Yankees' Corps 4 – is available now from Triumph Books everywhere books are sold. It is a look back at the 10-year anniversary of the Yankees' last World Series championship. That's unusual to say. 2009 Yankees, and they haven't won one since. Uh, gentlemen, first of all, uh, what made you want to do this now? I mean, obviously, it's been 10 years, but why this team? Why this championship? What was the right? What was the right timing and reason for this?
1: Well, I think that when Mark and I sat down and started thinking about a project we could work on together. We kept coming back to 2009. It was such a pivotal time in, in Yankee history. You're closing the old Yankee Stadium, moving across the street to the new one. Obviously, we know how it ends uh, with them beating the Phillies in the World Series. Spoiler which- alert! Yeah, yeah. So, if you, if you didn't know that, um, sorry to give away the ending. But, um, I, I think there was just so much going on in 2009, and we kept talking about what a special year that was, and I think it was a little bit underappreciated at the time, probably because none of us knew that it was going to be the last time that Derek Jeter held the World Series trophy. Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada, same same story for them. The only time that A-Rod would get to hold it. Um, and they obviously brought in so many big personalities that year, CeCe Sabathia, A.J. Burnett, Nick Swisher, Mark Teixeira, it was such a a huge year with so much going on, but I think we all thought in the moment, all right, that was cool and now the Yankees will go win a few more and it didn't quite work out that way.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to actually touch on with you Mark is that, you know, usually when people's write people write books about Yankees history, you write about eras. This is the only standalone championship in Yankees history. It's the only one that's not part of any other group. So does that make it a little bit more intriguing to write about and read about? It does, especially
0: because, you know, as we have in the title, the core four is certainly a big part of this team. But it went so much further than that. You had the new guys coming in that year in Sabathia, Tashera, Burnett, Swisher. You had some guys who had been there for several years who had never been to a World Series or at least won a World Series, guys like Hideki Matsui. I feel like every time we talk about this book, Matsui's name never gets brought up. He was the World Series MVP that year. Um you know, and then obviously A. Rod is sort of the 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 overarching uh, theme from the whole year. You know, we start out with the 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 PED situation mm-hmm. in spring training, the hip surgery, all the drama. He comes back, homers on his first pitch in Baltimore, and then finally, after five years of just epic postseason failures for him and for the Yankees, really dating back to that ALCS in two thousand four, uh, A. Rod goes out and has this monster. So we always used to joke that covering the Yankees was like covering a rock band. It was just mm-hmm. all these stars and you know fans at the waiting at the hotels and all the rest of it this team personifies that They had so many big names and so many stars and like Brian said, we all assumed that was going to be the first of many and it wasn't and when you realize that in hindsight and we went back and talked to all these guys in hindsight, uh, that year holds a lot of meaning to a lot of people.
2: The Gravelly Voice New Yorker is Mark Feinstein. The other guy is Brian Hoke. The book is Mission 27. Brian Cashman gave you the title, correct?
0: Brian Cashman did give us the title. I called him to set up uh, an interview with him for us to go sit down with him. I told him we were writing a book about the 09 team. He said, what are you going to call it? I said, we don't know yet. If you have any suggestions, let me know. Um, We hung up. About eight minutes later, my phone rings again, and it's Brian Cashman. He says, I got your title for you. I said, I'm listening. He said, Mission 27. So it's catchy. What's up? He tells me that Mission 27 was their internal, uh, sort of slogan going into the season that year. Uh, Chad Bowling, their mental skills director, uh, came up with the the phrase Mission 27. Obviously, they were the mission was their 27th world championship, and it was slapped onto every binder, uh, notebook, t shirt, etc., when they got to spring training that year. And it was sort of their unofficial slogan, and uh, As we spoke to players throughout the process of interviews for the book, every time we brought it up, they all said, Oh yeah, that's all we heard that spring. So but we never did. No, no, we never did, which is really amazing. I never saw the t shirts. maybe they were wearing them underneath their workout clothes or whatever it was um, you know or maybe we just looked at them and said oh it's another goofy <laughs> you know t-shirt that they're all wearing uh, which is
2: also very possible but that uh, was a new club somewhere yeah, well, yeah right Mission exactly. 27 where, where's that
0: right somewhere we wouldn't get into I'm sure uh, it's
2: but it's only half as good as Studio 54 <laughs>
0: <laughs> so very quick good mm. math Um yeah so so Cashman called me and said uh, there's your title I called Brian I said well I think Cash just gave us our, our title for the book and uh Lo and behold, it was.
2: What I found kind of interesting, and I, and I just finished reading the book before I talked to you guys, I was surprised at how open everybody was that you guys interviewed. I mean, they were. it didn't seem like they were holding anything back.
1: No, I think that time has kind of eroded what guard was up in 2009. And, and look, we all lived that season together. You know, the three of us were in that room and um, you didn't hear these guys talk. That openly, yeah. and I think uh, the fact that a lot of them have scattered to the winds—they're not active players anymore. Look, there's CC Sabathia and Brett Gardner—the only two who are still Yankees. Dave Robertson was when we were uh, writing the book, but everybody pretty much was happy to talk about that season. And I think that um, it's the fact that they're not in that room anymore. The story's already been written, or so they thought. Um, I feel like this is now the most complete account of what it was like to be around that 2009 Yankees team because um, guys are. uh, there's a saying, I think, in that clubhouse where what you see here, what you say here, let it stay here. They actually have that in the visiting clubhouse in Texas. Um, It's pasted on the wall, which is a weird thing to to put in public view. But anyway, um, I I think that now a lot of these guys have been out of the game for five, six, seven, eight years, and um, now they don't really care anymore, and and they're happy to, to relive those glory years.
0: You know, it's interesting. I don't think any of them, as open as they were, nobody was speaking out of school. There wasn't a lot of, you know, well, one guy said this and wouldn't put his name to it and was ripping mm. this guy. Everybody who spoke was, was on the record, was open and honest. And, and, and you know, this year, even the dramatic parts of this year 2009 for most of the players on that team that's the only World Series they ever won um you know for A-Rod as as much drama as there was that season Mm -hmm. he looks at that as the best year of his career right he comes back from the hip surgery Is worried he was never going to play again maybe not even be able to play with his kids again you know he just had Bo Jackson seared in his Mm -hmm. brain when he first heard he had to have hip surgery um and then he came back, goes 30 and 100. We were all sitting there with jaws dropped when he hits two home runs with seven mm-hmm. RBIs in his final inning of the yeah. season to get to 30 and 100. Um, but he loves it. He, he still, whenever he texts guys from that team, he finishes the text with hashtag 2009. Like, that is a year that in his mind defines his baseball career. Um, the other thing about so many guys being open and honest is, it made us realize that we didn't do as good of a job as we thought covering that team that year. We're really proud of what's in this book. But then I look back and say, why wasn't this in the daily news or on com in 2009?
2: I'll get to that later, but there's a, but what's funny to me is that one thing that I didn't catch, you know, really uh, think of or catch on to while we were covering the team, this was a really cocky group and it only comes out in hindsight after they've already won. So maybe, maybe that's part of it, but you know, these guys were all, yeah, the Yankees all say they're going to win the World Series every year, though that that's their goal, but these guys seem to have a different edge and cockiness to them Ten years after that, you guys that you brought out very well in the story.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's a certain strut to it. And look, they won 103 games during the regular season. Uh, they were coming to your town to drink your beer and take your women and, and win two out of three. You know, um, this this is a team that really enjoyed being with each other on the field, off the field. They knew they were good. They were brought together to be good. And I don't want to make it sound like wire to wire, they just kicked everybody's butts because they didn't. There's a big scene in the book mm-hmm. where Brian Cashman has to go down to Atlanta and he kind of reads them the riot act. A little bit in his Cashman monotone, and um, says, "Look, you're better than this. this. This is not what I brought you together to do. Fix it." And they do. They take off from there, and um, I, I think that uh, they knew when you put that much talent together in a room, more often than not, it's the cream is going to rise to the top. And um, yeah, no, but I think that winning breeds confidence, or confidence breeds winning. However you want to you want to say it, this team knew they were good and they were con- going to come in and beat you.
2: I, yeah, I remember the the story about Atlanta and the meeting in Atlanta when it happened. in The middle the middle of June, like right around right around this time of year, like June twenty twenty something or, uh, around June that, 24th, right? 24th, I think it was. So, but to me, like that stands out now was the crisis point. Like I always look back at championship teams and say they face a couple of crisis points, usually in the postseason. This team didn't really have that bump in the road in the postseason where they were staring at maybe elimination or a deficit. I mean, game lost game one mm-hmm. to the Phillies, but other you know, otherwise. The Atlanta, the Atlanta meeting, and having the boss, the principal, come down, as you put it, I mean that's that seems to be the one crisis point that they all had to kind of get past. No
0: question about it. And and I remember at the end of that season, I don't know if it was going into the postseason or maybe after the World Series, but I remember writing a big story about uh, looking back at that meeting and at that that series. And uh, you know they had lost series to the Nationals and the Marlins, who were not good that year. They had come into Atlanta and uh, and gotten embarrassed in the first game against the Braves. Cashman is watching in his office, flies down, says, I can't, can't deal with this. He flies down to Atlanta unannounced, comes in there. They have this meeting. He says, basically what you said, he reminds them, you're better than this. This is I put this team together to win the World Series, and we're not playing like it. And he feels like, all right, this is good. And then they go out, and they're getting no hit through the first five innings. And he's going, well, I'm really glad I made <laughs> this trip. This was really worth it. And then if you remember what happened from there, Joe Girardi gets thrown out of that game. Brett Gardner gets called out of close play at first. Girardi goes out there and basically tells the umpire, I'm not leaving until you throw me out. He was just – he needed to try to spark his team. He gets thrown out. Francisco Cervelli comes up and hits the first home run of his big league career, and they just took off from there. And that was really the crisis point of the year, uh, you know, playoffs they just breeze through minnesota like they always do uh you know the angels going into that series it seemed like well that's been one of those teams that they've always gotten knocked out by they've never gotten over that hump um but they finally did and like you said they lost game one uh with cc on the mound and that's where you know we have a whole chapter about game two was was the biggest game of the entire season as far as i'm concerned aj Burnett. Basically justified eighty two and a half million dollars with this game too.
2: He was one of the big off season acquis- acquisitions. A lot of money spent. CC Sabathia, AJ Burnett, Mark Teixeira, uh, Nick Swisher came in as well via trade. The thing I I kind of again look back on now and, and wonder is that you know the core four all had really big seasons. The Yankees don't win the championship without Derek Jeter having you know another two hundred hit season. Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada having big seasons, but it seemed like. What was different this time is that they let the new guys come in and be themselves, which wasn't really the case. And those guys all thrived, the new guys all thrived because they were able to be themselves and kind of take on leadership roles and not play second fiddle to the core four veterans.
1: And I think that speaks to CeCe Sabathia more than anybody else. I think that he was the guy who brought that clubhouse together and was able to be that bridge between the old guard, the Jeter guys, and the new guard. I mean... You know, that's, that's the whole thing we talk about early in the negotiation process where Brian Cashman sits down with CC Sabathia and CC is telling him, yeah, I've heard some things about this team. I, I don't know if that's a clubhouse that I want to be a part of. And Cashman very bluntly tells him, yeah, no, they're true. We are broken. We are a fractured clubhouse and that's why we need you. We need you to come in here. And, you know, Cashman had heard all the things about how CeCe would bring his Indians teammates over to his house for a barbecue. They'd go to basketball games together, go watch the Cavaliers. Um, CeCe didn't spend too much time in Milwaukee. But, uh, you know, he was also known as a great unifier there. And, um, you know, uh, CC was kind of on the fence about it until he spoke to his wife, Amber. And Amber told him, well, of course, that's what you do. Don't you realize that? That's where you bring clubhouses together. That's where your value is. And CC was obviously an ace caliber yeah. pitcher as well. But, um, you yeah, know, for everything on and off the field... He really did bring that team together, and, and you saw it in spring training. They would go up to Orlando Magic games, and um, they, they had group outings, go to restaurants. The, the pitching staff all hung out together, um, and that really kind of family atmosphere started very early in that, in that year.
2: I feel like A-Rod's redemption story kind of hinges on CeCe and the rest of those guys coming in because for several years he's trying to be part of that old group and fit in with them, and he doesn't quite get there. Now this new group comes in, and they they are the guys who are helping lead this team, and he can kind of shift over into that group and kind of be part of that and not have to you know hitch his wagon to Jeter, Posada, and everybody anymore. His Part of his redemption, in my mind, after reading all this – really revolves around C.C. C. Sabathia and that group.
0: I think a lot of it also goes back to February of that year. The Sports Illustrated story comes out about the PEDs that he'd used in Texas. Uh, he comes and does the whole big press conference and spring training, um, and that sort of sets the tone for his year. Then he has the hip surgery. And I think when he came back from the hip surgery, uh, he joined a team that wasn't setting the world on fire to that point. They needed him to come back. They the offense needed a boost. Uh, you know, some guys had gotten off to slow starts. The team was okay, but not not great. Um, and Alex came back and I think having sort of stared reality in the face twice in, you know, the preceding three months with the with the steroid situation and the surgery, he came back and finally I know he kept telling us, Jason Zilla would tell him Stop talking. Let your play do the talking. And Alex would just talk about baseball at that point. And he really tried to let the noise fade into the background and just focus on baseball. And I think he was pretty successful doing that, that whole year. And the fact that there were so many other stars there, besides just the Jeter, Pettit, Rivera, Posada group, I think that took some of the pressure off of him. And certainly by the time they got to October, he had been through so much that year that he's like, look, Another bad postseason is not going to be the worst thing that happens to me this year, and I think that allowed him to take that deep breath. Kevin Long said he would talk to him all the time. Uh, they'd go out for a drink after a game or go out for a bite, and and he would just keep your mind focused, one bat at a time. You don't, you know, you don't have to do everything every time you go to the plate. If they're not going to pitch to you. What's Kevin Long's favorite saying? Pass the baton. And they had enough guys in that lineup that
1: a didn't have to be the guy. And then in October, it allowed him to be the guy. You just reminded me of something that Zillow told us, because we, we talked to as many executives and anybody around that 0-9 team that we could find for this book. But you just reminded me of what Zillow said. Uh, he, he took A-Rod aside that year and said, do you realize you're the only player that everybody wants to hear less from in this clubhouse? <laughs> and I, I'm just thinking about that now in, in the wake of what just happened with Clint Frazier and how uh, Jason and everybody was dealing with that. Yeah, they were actually getting Alex to try and, and shut up and then just go in the back room and let his play speak for itself. It's pretty funny.
2: The thing I, I actually took from A Rod and all his wonderful quotes on this uh, were that, you know, this is his one great accomplishment that nobody can take away from him. You know, there's obviously debate about everything else, but he was finally part of something that he wanted to be. And in the years after that, it's still the one thing that nobody can ever take away from him.
0: Mark Teixeira tells a great story to us about. The night they win game six, he's in the clubhouse. They're all doing the champagne celebration and it's starting to die down and everybody's finding their families. And and he walked back into the bathroom area, in the back of the clubhouse. And Alex was sitting on the counter uh, in the bathroom, holding a bottle of champagne, just sort of sitting there, like just in space and deep thought. And it dawned on Teixeira at that moment, who was experiencing his own first World Series, that this guy right here, who's one of the great players of his generation, this is the first time he's ever won the World Series. And you could see what it meant to him, not in full view of everybody, not for the cameras. He was sitting in the bathroom on a counter by himself, just sort of taking in the realization that he had finally achieved the goal that he had said was his only goal all these years, which was to be a world champion. And I thought it was interesting that Teixeira, who was experiencing it himself for the first time, walks in and, and it comes to his realization, he had played with him in Texas, that, right. that he's going through the exact same thing.
2: I think we all recognize that losing game one of the World Series could have been a just a, a big knockout punch because you gotta face that guy again. If you lose game two, you're in a big hole and you gotta face that guy again, Cliff Lee, who shut you down in game one. AJ Burnett changed that. And I you know, we've all in in I think even in the moment, we all recognized that that was the biggest game the Yankees were going to play because of how well he pitched and, as you said, justified the contract, which is what uh, somebody – oh, Dave Island told you, uh, that that one game justifies the contract. But the interesting subplot there is the relationship between Burnett and Posada, which we all kind of – we knew that it was bubbling, but I don't think we really understood what was beneath the surface there, and you guys really got to the heart of that.
0: I was – it might be my favorite chapter of the book just for the sheer emotion of it. We're talking 10 years later. Jorge Posada is still mad about this. Yeah, he, I mean, he has not gotten over this. They won the World Series that year, and it still burns at him. Uh, he says he felt stabbed in the back that he was not given a chance to work things out. And they had some good times together that year. They had some good runs where A.J. pitched well to Jorge. Mm-hmm. But they had a couple of starts early August. There was a Boston game. that was a total disaster. And when Joe Girardi decided to start Jose Molina with A.J. the next time, it wasn't with the idea of he's your new catcher. But then they worked well, so they did it again. And they, and they worked well again. And at that point, Girardi said, look, this is working. We're not going to mess with this. A.J. was insistent that he did not ask for a personal catcher. Sabathia actually told us, he told AJ, you have to go in there and tell them that Jose has to catch you. And AJ said, I will not do that. So AJ felt bad that it all played out the way it did. He said he would walk into the clubhouse and see Jorge sitting there and, and feel terrible knowing that this guy who's a legend on this team wasn't going to play that night because of him. Both of these guys were really honest, were really raw. And maybe just as interesting, Jose Molina, who caught Burnett down the stretch and in those playoff games where Posada had played, I think the number was like 83 of the previous 84 Yankee playoff games he had started. Jose Molina, who did a good job with Burnett, actually kind of threw Posada under the bus a little bit for not being a very good and supportive teammate and caring more about his own situation of not being in there than backing up Molina. It was between the three of them. I thought they were all so open, so honest, and so raw.
2: The emotion that I think we all love about Jorge Posada, what I, is one of the reasons I've always referred to him as the Sonny Corleone of the Yankees. <laughs> uh, when you read through this part, I found like AJ is the one you like more because of how still how he feels. He still feels bad about it. Yeah. And Jorge's the one who's still, like, he feels he feels slighted. AJ, to this day, is almost apologetic about the whole thing. I feel like 10 years later, you almost like him more than you did in 2009.
1: Uh, maybe that's the case. Yeah, I mean, we also now know what the ending is. And Jorge Posada wound up in Monument Park. And AJ didn't quite fulfill what he came to New York to do. He didn't even finish out the five-year contract. Um, I, I think that it's it was really interesting to reopen that window and kind of revisit it because i think that the way burnett's career went in new york yeah, you, know, you kind of pushed 2009 aside, and you know, there was a lot of frustration there. And it, it, he wound up in Pittsburgh, and kind of um, it went a different way. And then Posada, the way it ended with him and it being transitioned to the DH role, and there was a lot of bumps in the road there. I think that was a really tough spot for Joe Girardi more than anybody, and and it was a kind of a precursor of what was to come with. Uh, how Joe was going to handle these kind of fading veterans and ushering them out the door. I think that was very difficult for Girardi, and uh, it comes through as one of the first chapters because Jorge Posada is still a very productive player here in 2009. Uh, That wasn't going to be the case going forward. So I think uh, more than anything for Girardi, it was kind of an indication of things that were going to come and and the headaches that he was going to have.
2: I remember uh, when Joe Girardi was hired, the idea was that if he was going to be here for any length of time – he was not going to have the luxury that Joe Torre had by getting all these stars in their prime. He was going to have to see these guys on the way out. That was going to be the tough part of the job. But if he was going to be here for any length of time, and if we'd have known he was going to be here for 10 years, we probably wouldn't have predicted he'd only walk away with one World Series championship. Uh, managers, especially here, don't survive that long. How did? What sense did you get of Joe looking back on his one World Series championship and what it meant to him?
1: I didn't know what we were going to get with Girardi because he was one of the first interviews we did, and um, this was right after twenty seventeen. I mean, coming off the heels of that and his dismissal from mm-hmm. from the Yankees universe and we went to the MLB Network Studios in Secaucus and it was early in that season. And so I was kinda wondering how open Girardi was going to be, but Um, I I think that when he realized we weren't all that interested in revisiting the 2017 postseason and all that, um, that we were going back to the good year, uh, the best (laughs) year. um, I, I think that it was... It was strange, in a, in a way, because I almost felt like he was still the Yankee manager. I don't know if you got that feeling, too, sitting in that room with him, but, you know, we'd already gone through a spring training with Aaron Boone, and then it was going back to talking with Girardi about these players, and it was like being in this weird time warp, and it was, it was fun. Um, And I think that he was very open, as open as Girardi can be. I think that he's still um, guarded in some ways. But, I mean, this was the best year of his managing career, bar none. And um, I think that um, in, in some fashion, it was almost therapeutic for him to go through the trials and tribulations of that year. Because, I mean, you look back and Joe did a fantastic job with that team. And I think he was the perfect guy at that time for that team, regardless of what happened later in his New York tenure.
0: What I find funny about Joe, and really almost every single person that we spoke to for this book, we would bring up some topic, some game, some series, some moment, and it was almost like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. All of them, yeah. right? And, and you're sitting there going, how could you have forgotten about that? This was like a, a seminal moment in your biggest year, but it reminds you that the baseball season is so long, it's such a grind, they've all gone through so many of them, that yeah, they all remember like Matsui having a monster World Series, but they might not remember. I mean, a few people uh, forgot about Johnny Damon's double steal in yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah. It's like, how could you possibly forget about Did Johnny? That? Remember that? Oh, Johnny! Re- yeah. Johnny remembered it very well. Um, but it, but for Gerardi, it almost like Brian said, it almost seemed like going through this season. And we went into this interview with you know eight pages of typed out questions, and we sat with Joe for nearly two hours. And it seemed like every time we'd bring something up, it would it would spark some other memory in his head. And you'd see a little, like, glimmer in his eye that you hadn't seen for several years. Because when we'd see him, it would be after a playoff loss or it would be after some injury or, you know, whatever it may be where you saw the veins popping and the stress and everything else. And this took him back to a time where I think he really enjoyed reliving that season. Like you said, they all know how it ends. so. Yeah. Even when you're asking them about difficult parts of that season, you know, when we were talking to A.J. and Jorge, as difficult as it was for them to talk about their situation, we eventually got to the World Series and they were talking about, you know, hoisting a trophy and popping champagne corks.
2: As we've said, this is this one is a standalone championship for the Yankees. I I always remember in conversations with people uh, who play on the 86 Mets or were fans of the 86 Mets. It always comes back to, oh, they should have won more. Why didn't they win more? There's a lament there. Did you find that this group of people, looking back 10 years later, they had that why didn't we win more lament or were they just grateful and cherished the one that they did win?
1: I think a little from column A, a little from mm-hmm. column B, but you know the Yankees' goal is always to win the World Series. As you just asked me that question, one of my favorite things was when we asked Johnny Damon, almost verbatim, that question. I think I asked it. I said, why do you think the Yankees didn't win more after 2009? And he said, oh, I I because <laughs> the Yankees didn't bring me and Matsui back. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. But um, the Yankees obviously... Went in a different direction after '09, 9 and there were changes that were made. You didn't keep that same team together. You you never do. You never have the same 25 guys. um, But, yeah, I love that comment Mm. from Johnny. I think we
0: asked almost every player, Cash, Girardi, everybody, that question about, you know, after you win in '09, 9 you have the parade, do you assume there are going to be more of these with this group? And every one of them gave some variation of the same answer, which was, yeah, we probably thought there were, but you realize, especially after actually winning it, you realize how hard it is. We've all been through it before, where you've had bad seasons or you've gotten to the playoffs and lost in the playoffs. And until you actually win it all and you see what it takes to win it all, you realize how hard it is to do that. There's three rounds of the playoffs. There's you know getting through a season to get to the playoffs, and I mean this team got to the playoffs in 2010, got to the playoffs in 2011, got to the playoffs in 2012. So. They did get to October, and you always hear the word crapshoot involved when people talk about the playoffs, and um, and to some extent that's true. But I think they all appreciate what they did in 09 more because it never happened again because they know how hard it was to accomplish it in the first place.
2: I almost feel like we do. I mean, that's the only World Championship team we've covered on a day-in and day-out basis. I mean, all the other wow. Yankee teams predated us, and we, you know fans who watch those think back, and they, they want it to be as as easy as it seemed back then, but I know I have an appreciation for how hard it is and how how unique each season is. I don't lump it all into, oh, they never get pitching or they never win the big game anymore. Like, every season seems to be its own biggest hurdle. I know I have a, a greater appreciation than when I first started than before I started doing this. Well
0: of course that was only Hoke's third year on the beat. So he really didn't put in all that much time to finally cover a finally cover a World Series champion. Sweeney, you and I both started in two thousand one and I know that there were people who blamed us oh, yeah. for the Yankees not winning the World Series? Mm. I said, wait, they got there in 01. They Mo in the lead in the ninth. Moe blowing the lead in the ninth inning in Game Seven was me and Sweeney's fault. No, we didn't play a right. single inning. Right. Not ever. one inning. Uh, you know, they yeah. got there in 03, yeah. Boston in 04, the whole thing. But I, I think, yeah, seeing them come close a couple of times, seeing the, the collapse in 04, and then them finally getting there in 09, you do you do just even being around the team you understand how hard it is to do what they did in 09. And when you see them finally win, you know, to see Jeter and Rivera and Pettit and Posada get back there again. You know, these guys won four times in five years, from 96 to 2000. They probably assumed that they would be talking about matching Yogi with 10 rings by the time it was all said and done. And it took them nine years to get back. And I know Rivera in particular said – I appreciated 0-9. He said 96 is the best one because it's the first one. 98, mm-hmm. obviously the great team. Two thousands, the Mets, Subway Series. He said, I appreciated 09 as much as anything else because having gone nine years in between championships, you you start to wonder at some point, am I ever going to experience that again?
1: Mm-hmm. And, of course, in 09 they finally got to. For the record, I do blame the two of you because I mm-hmm. showed up in 07 <laughs> and I didn't really have to wait all that long. So. Yeah, but
2: you're the one who got Joe Torre fired. <laughs> he was doing just fine until you showed up. Was he doing just fine
1: though? <laughs> I I don't even think Tory would agree
2: with that. We're gonna blame you for that. Uh, two for each of you before we finish this up. Uh, your favorite moment of that season that you got to report on in the book. Mark you first.
0: Uh, my favorite moment of that season. I would probably go back to that Atlanta series. I, the, it was, it was one of those rare moments where, as it's happening, you kind of realize. The magnitude of it and and it felt big at the time and it proved to be big and it involved so many different people and so many different elements with the cashman showing up and joe getting tossed and francisco cervelli of all people hitting yeah. this big home run which by the way he told us in the book that he called, called that shot mm-hmm. which is i didn't believe him <laughs> but i don't remember who it was in the on deck circle backed it up jabba. was it Jabba? that's right it was jabba um So Jabba backed that up. He actually, and I didn't have to ask him, he just, he brought it up. Cervelli told me he was going to hit a home run. I was like, wow, that really happened. (laughs) Um, I think that, that, that day, that, that series in Atlanta to me felt big at the time and proved to be as big as we felt. And on a separate note, we all remember that was the series Michael Jackson passed away, which uh, (laughs) was, was, sort of put this weird backdrop. They were playing Michael Jackson in the clubhouse. They they and a lot of a Michael lot Jackson, Jackson, Jackson in the clubhouse. and yeah. uh, It was just, I don't know, for whatever reason I remember being in Atlanta and this all craziness going on that I'm reporting and then we find out Michael Jackson died and it was just a whole bunch of weird.
1: My uh, my answer on this is two things. You um, uh, only asked for one. I know, but <laughs> the first part of the book, the, the way we started the book was... Uh, I really enjoyed that as far as taking you back to game six, the final out, and talking to every single player on the field and getting their viewpoint of that Shane Victorino ground ball. Robinson Cano to Mark share we've seen the highlight a ten thousand times, but getting their unique viewpoints that was fun to, to get that from every guy on the field. And the other one is A Rod's birthday party, and none of us knew about that at the time. It went it went unreported, but getting to that is my favorite chapter in the book. And um, just for the celebrity of it, the fact that A Rod has this mansion in Westchester, and Kate Hudson is throwing this fantastic black tw- black tie soiree, and Jay Z is there, and how the night just devolves into hijinks once the booze is flowing and the no-boo catering is out and the guys are all in their tuxedos and dresses and um, everybody winds up in the pool. That is, uh, I think that really sums up what that team was. I mean, they, they were good on the field, but they had fun off the field. And, um, you know, just uh, I, I think it's it may not be something you're ever going to see again. I mean, remember the iPhone was barely even out then. Yeah. Had no camera phone, video, or photos. We all just started tweeting that season. Yes, think, right? yeah, and um, yeah, and and I remember actually starting tweeting. I was thinking, this is stupid. Who's ever going to use this? It, it was. Mm-hmm. I,
2: I remember at one point, all of us had the exact same idea. It's to see which one of us could type the fastest. Right, it was right. a right. typing Good contest. Thing. Right, yeah. and, and hoax the fastest typer. Oh, by so, oh, so far. Uh,
0: <laughs> you know, going back to what what Brian was talking about with that that first chapter in, in the last out of Game Six. One little nugget that we Earth is about Mariano, which since he's going to the Hall of Fame this summer, seems like it's as good a time as any. We found out that he pitched the second half of that World Series with a strained oblique, and I later, in all of our research, we found out that it was reported once. Uh, on a New York Times baseball blog Mm -hmm. by Jack Curry, but never made a big deal. So I don't know. It was like reported as like about a week. I think it was at the parade, but it was reported as like a minor thing. Mm -hmm. Mariano said it was the most pain he's ever been Mm -hmm. in his life. Mm -hmm. Dave Robertson was literally going back to the clubhouse in between innings, bringing back hot water bottles and heating pads under his jersey so nobody would see them because they didn't want the Phillies to know that Mariano had this situation. His wife begged him not to pitch. And he said... It's the World Series. I have to pitch. Yeah. And he pitched like Mariano Rivera yeah. with a strained oblique. This is an injury that keeps most players out for six like weeks. Like 40 something
2: pitches in game six, right? Yes, yeah.
0: yes. And and Girardi actually told us, obviously, he knew about the injury, although most people didn't. Most of the people mm-hmm. on the coaching staff had no idea that Mariano was injured. There were like, I think it was like Girardi Island, Mike Harkey. Mike Harkey, and maybe a couple of players, and that was it. But Girardi said, knowing the injury and knowing how many pitches Mariano pitch in game six if the Phillies had come back to win that game he wasn't going to have Mariano in game seven no. could you imagine the Yankees yeah, going into game seven of the World Series without Mariano Rivera being available now Mo would have said I'm available mm-hmm. give me the damn ball right. but Joe Joe doesn't do that so it would have been really interesting but that was it was fascinating to me to find out that he was pitching through that kind of pain
2: and just because you hinted at it earlier but it's actually the last question I wanted to ask you guys um we all we lived through that season from day one to the very end. What's one story that you found out in writing this book that you wish you had been able to report on that you wish you had known when it happened? I
0: mean, in all I areas, wrote for the yeah. Daily News at the time, so there's no answer besides the A. Rod birthday party, right? I mean, that's <laughs> we would have had front page material for a week on that. Um, that's got to be. Uh, the answer for me most of the other stuff that we reported on was sort of further reporting on stuff that we knew about such as the um you know the 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 Burnett Posada Mm -hmm. situation things like that Mm -hmm. um we obviously dug deeper into the signings of Teixeira and CeCe and that kind of thing Mm uh but the A-Rod birthday party I mean
1: Phil Hughes tried to dunk on Jay-Z and (laughs) failed there there's a front page all in itself Mm -hmm. We were just talking about this last night. And how about this, the the fact that during the CC sabathian negotiations, Reggie Jackson is in the room for the first meeting, and Reggie dominates the conversation. He is giving out signed baseballs. He's being Mr. October. He's telling how great Reggie Jackson is and how great Reggie Jackson, how great it is to be Reggie Jackson and this and that and CeCe's in the room with Brian Cashman and, and Brian Peters, his agent, and they're like, well, this is great, but when are we going to talk about me being a Yankee? And so they had to have a second meeting without Reggie Jackson because he dominated the conversation so much, and um, gosh, I wish we knew that at the time. The fact that um, Reggie was getting in the way of CeCe being a Yankee. I, you know, I can only imagine what the headlines would have been. How Mr. October almost kept the Yankees from getting CeCe Sabathia. Um it, it all worked out in the end, but I, I, I wish I knew that at the time. That would have been fun.
2: I think so many of us remember it, and just because of where we are in the media world, 2009, there are so many ways to relive it, but this is a different way to do it because there's so many more great behind-the-scenes stories uh, and stuff that for everybody, for people like us that were there every day, there's stuff that we didn't know uh, at the time. And it's fun to read about now or stuff that we forgot. Uh, it's called mission 27, a new boss, a new ballpark, and one last ring for the Yankees core four. It's available from triumph books, anywhere you get books and uh, go pick it up. It's great summer reading. It's great beach reading. It's uh, it's going to make you relive that great championship season. And there aren't very many books devoted to one single Yankees championship year. There's 27 to choose from. This is the last one. You guys did a fantastic job on it. Good luck with it, and uh, thanks for giving me a couple of minutes about it. Uh, Again, available from Triumph Books anywhere books are sold. Uh, Another summer reading edition of 30 with Murdy Complete. Go back in the archive. You can check out some of our our friends and colleagues and what their... what their books are all about, and some other episodes as well. I do want to call attention to you that in a couple of weeks, Hall of Fame inductions, I will be there covering in Cooperstown. Mariano Rivera and Mike Messina are going in. In the days leading up to that, please come back here and check out. I do have episodes posting with both Mariano Rivera and Mike Messina, as well as a, as a episode with Derek Jeter, where he reflects on his teammates, Mariano Mike Messina, and another Hall of Fame inductee, Roy Halladay, who he really had uh, probably the most trouble hitting of anybody he's ever faced. So all of those are coming up in the next couple of weeks leading up to Hall of Fame induction. So please check it out, radio.com, WFAN.com, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Go check out the book, Mission 27. Uh, Until next time, thank you all for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.